All right. Well, Robert, you and I have been planning on doing um, some suttas, and this is the list. Um, name of the sutta is Sabha Asava Sutta, which means all the takes. Now, um, the Asava actually is a different word than Kilesa, and it has a different meaning, but in uh, most cases, they're mixed. Um, the word Kilesa actually uh, means a fetter or a bondage or um, an extra burden that we carry. Uh, rope tied down, that kind of thing, no freedom. So where the word asava has uh, the quality of uh, an eruption, an outflow, um, and that I think that basically what the Buddha was using this word for is this word was in the time of the Buddha would be used for a boil, a pus pocket, a um, uh, let us say uh, a blackhead, um, that kind of thing, a blemish. So this would be more of a blemish, and the other one would be more of a um, uh, a bondage. Now the fetters are uh, actually um, used in the sense of the progress that one makes. That some of the fetters for soda pond, some of the fetters for uh, uh, soda gum. Uh, some of the fetters for anagami and then um, a group of fetters for the um, arahat. So these are the way that the word fetter is used or kilesa. But this is the word asava, which um, does not have that connotation so strongly of these are the stages that you go through, right? Except half the sutta are, is about that. In other words, there really is a deep connection between Kilesa and Asaba. Hmm. Okay, so now let's go ahead and start reading the sutta. Thus I have heard on one occasion the blessed was living at Saravasi and Jetis Grove, uh, Anthropiticus Park. There he addressed the bhikkhus, and they said, yes, venerable sir. The bhikkhus said, I sh the Buddha said, bhikkhus, I shall teach you a discourse on the restraints of all of the taints. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, venerable sir. And the blessed one said this. I say that the destruction of the taints is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and does not see. Who knows and who sees what? Wise attention and unwise attention. When one attends unwisely, the unarisen taints arise and arisen taints increase. When one attends wisely, unarisen taints do not arise, and arising taints, arisen taints 
are abandoned. This is the crux of the whole sutta right here is the issue of wise attention. When we're paying wise attention, then um, the asavas um, are uh, decreased. It would be something like if you go to the mirror and pay attention to what you see, you will scrub your face. And by scrubbing the face, by washing the face, then one uh, that would be wisely attending to one's face and the blackheads and the pus pockets, etc., like that will be reduced. Because there are taints that should be abandoned by seeing. There are taints that should be abandoned by restraining. There are taints that should be abandoned by using, there are taints that should be abandoned by enduring, and there are taints that should be abandoned by avoiding, and there are taints that should be abandoned by removing, and there are taints that should be abandoned by developing. Hmm. Okay, now. In Western Buddhism, it seems that the only one that they have any interest in is that last one right. in developing. And yet the one that's most important in this one, uh, both in this sutta and in other places, it points out that the real issue are the, the uh, taints that are abandoned by seeing. That's why it's number one. It's the first one on the list. Mm. Okay, so we have these seven things that we have by seeing, restraining, using, enduring, avoiding, removing, and developing. And guess what? The taints themselves are not mentioned, really. They are mentioned in the details a bit, but all of the taints are certainly not mentioned but these are the ways that we would remove all of the tanks. Hmm. So this one of being abandoned by seeing, there is a, a very clear example there, but that's not the only example of the seeing or attending wisely. That in fact, attending wisely is the seeing. And as we're developing and as we are removing and avoiding and enduring and using and restraining, we still have to do that with wise attention or by seeing. So the seeing is the number one. Okay, so let's start with verse five then. Tanks that are to be abandoned by seeing. What tanks bhikkhu should be abandoned by seeing? Here, Bhikkhu's an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for the noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in the Dhamma, who has no respect for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their Dhamma, does not understand what things are fit for attention and what things uh, that are not fit for attention. In other words, this is what ignorance is all about, really, is that we don't know what's worth while looking at Sure. Since that is so, he attends to those things unfit for attention, and he does not attend to those things that are fit for attention. And what things unfit for attention 
that he uh, uh, attends to. They are the things such that when he attends to them, the unarisen taint of sensual desire arises in him. The unarisen taint of uh, sensual desire increases and the unrisen taint of being increases in him and the arisen taint of being increases. The unarisen taint of ignorance arises in him and the arisen taint of ignorance increases. These are the things unfit for attention he attends to. And what things, uh, what are the things fit for attention that he does not attend to? Okay. These are the things such that when he attends to them, the unarisen taint of sensual desire does not in arise in him and the original sense of sensual desire is abandoned. The unarisen taint does not in, uh, arise in him and the arisen taint of being is abandoned. The unarisen taint of ignorance does not arise in him and the arisen taint of ignorance is abandoned. Okay. Actually, you can think of this as kind of the introduction or another way of looking at the second noble truth. These things arise, sensual desire, ignorance, and a sense of being or a sense of an object or an obstacle. Okay, this is actually a, a, a different way of looking at the second noble truth. And the second noble truth then he's pointing at is because we're not paying attention. We're not looking. We're not having wise attention. Okay. These are the things fit for attention that he does not attend to. By abandoning, by attending to things unfit for attention and by not attending to things fit for attention, both arisen taints arise in him and arisen taints increase. Okay. Now that we've got that, here's an example. This is how uh, uh, he attends unwisely. Here it goes. Oh, this, what is, this is a good one. Was I in the past, okay, dealing with the past? Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How shall I be in the past? Having been what, what did I become in the past? Shall I be the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Okay. Past and future is yep. the issue here. Or else he inwardly is perplexed about this present moment. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from and where will it go? All right. Now, the expression that is used here is the expression that was used in the time of the Buddha. But that we can extrapolate that into musing about who we are, musings about the past, musing about the present musing about the future, paying attention to it unwisely. And this is why the taints of the second noble truth come into play. Now, the reason why these questions are asked is because in the old original uh, Vedas, um, etc., uh, there was 
uh, six definite viewpoints that people had. These viewpoints that were written down in the old Rig Vedas, we have to go read those old Rig Vedas now because it's not part of our culture. <laughs> and that's the issue with this part of the sutta is, is that this is something that was very specific. The Buddha didn't come up with this. He's answering old, old, old questions about it. That in fact, in modern times, if this sutta had been written, this paragraph would be about Christianity <laughs> rather than uh, the old Brahmanism. So what did the Brahmins believe? They had six beliefs. The view that self exists in me. In other words, I have a soul. The view self exists in me arises in, is true and established. Or the view no self in me arises and uh, in him and is a truth and established. That would be kind of like somewhere, maybe you could say two different views, uh, uh, versions of it. One would be the atheist view. But there's also the atheist view that I do have a self, but it will die at the, at the, at the breakup of the body. That the, uh, the self will be abandoned. The Christian view is, is that no, the self is there or the soul is there, even if the body is abandoned. So no self exists in me can also be thought of Western Buddhist because they've got this thing called anatta, you know. Sure. And it just and uh, I've had a lot of students that ask me about this because they're confused. But the, uh, the whole point of it is, is they're confused because they're looking at it from a Western mentality rather from the original Brahmin version, which is what is in the suttas. The Buddha answered an old Brahmin issue. Okay. Does the self exist in me? Or does no self exist in me? And these views get established. A question. So do you think like a more accurate translation of no self would be no soul? Absolutely. Okay. No soul exists. Why? Because the soul, by definition, is permanent and everlasting. Right. Okay. But the self is more complex because the word self is used in all kinds of ways in English language. There's no one particular definition. Right. Okay. So a soul has a particular definition, but the word self has a wide variety of definitions. We give a, a tree a self, in fact. When you say, this is not plastic, this is wood itself. Right. Right. We use that kind of language all the time, which we're talking about specificity often. Right. Okay, now uh, specificity is Robert. You are Robert Cohen. We know that. And the you is there, and that gives Buddhists a whole lot of trouble because we say, well, wait a minute, Robert Cohen doesn't exist. Well, yes, Robert Cohen does exist, but it does not exist as a soul or a permanent entity. It is a moving target. Right. Okay. Now, going to physics for just a bit, physics. Uh, teaches that we can know 
the philosophy or the uh, uh, a direction, but we cannot know both the uh, the direction and the velocity and the location instantaneously at the same time. We can't do that because something that's moving cannot be defined as a as in a location. And if it does, then its velocity is zero. It's not in any one location ever if it's moving. Sure. Right? Okay, so if we have a definition of a self that doesn't move, then that's um, a soul. If you have the definition of a self that is a moving target, then there's no soul there. Right. Okay, if you can get that part of it, okay. So let's go back and he says, when he attends unwisely in this way, one of six views is arises in him. The, self, the view that self exists in me arises in him and is established, or the view no self exists in me arises in him and is true and established. Or the view I perceive self with self. That's interesting, but let's look at some of the others so that we can get a handle on where this is going. I perceive self with self, or I perceive not self with self, or I perceive self with no self, or um, uh, it is the same self of mine that speaks and feels and experiences here and now the results of good and bad actions, basically from the past. But this self of mine is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and it will endure as long as eternity. Now, this part is where Christianity and um, Hinduism agree. Mm. Okay, that the that this self or this um, uh, soul is me, and it is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will not endure as long, and will endure as long as eternity. Now, the Buddha says that this view is a speculative view. Why is it speculative? It's because how long do we know eternity? How much eternity have you ever seen, Robert? A lot of it. No, you haven't seen any of it. <laughs> eternity is a big thing. Long, long time. That's, yeah, I know. I'm okay. just... And so the Buddha said, <laughs> no, you're joking. Yeah. This, spec this speculative view, because is called a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the vacillation of views. It's a fetter of views. Okay, well, here's the word now introduced, the kalesa. Okay, so the kalesa is a kalesa of views. This is in, in the in the scene. Fettered by um, a fetter of views, the untaught ordinary person is not free from birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. He is not free from dukkha, I say. All right. Now, some people 
who already believe in this everlasting soul will read this passage and say, aha, the Buddha's proving us right when he talks about the untaught ordinary person is not free from birth, aging, and death. Okay, well, if the person is not free from birth, aging, and death, that means that birth, death, birth, death will keep going on and on. But what the Buddha is talking about is, is that we will not be free from the body breaking up. But death here has more to do with suffering. It has more to do with um, the fear of death. So in Christianity, they talk about Jesus in the sense of death has no sting to it. What is the sting? The sting of fear. And you probably have been around uh, situations that you know that a beginner, a raw recruit, someone who has never done it before, is filled with trepidation and fear. An example of that is three dogs running down the pasture uh, and uh, two of them, one then the other, jumps across the creek, but the third dog stops and doesn't jump across the creek. Now I ask you, which of these three dogs has never jumped across the creek before? The third dog. The third dog has never jumped across the creek before, and therefore he is afraid to jump across that creek before. You know what's funny about that though, is oftentimes people are the most fearless when they're teenagers, you know, um, when it comes to certain things. You know, like uh, Sandra and I were talking about this earlier today, how when you're in your early, early 20s and late teens, there's kind of a fearlessness that kind of is replaced by more of a caution, you know, once you hit around 25. Mm-hmm. Cortex has, has completed developing. So that's the only case where that isn't true. But generally speaking, yes, you're totally right. You take three people the same age and the one that isn't sure is going to be the one that's going to be cautious. Ah, except that then part of that aging has to do with jumping across enough creeks and being both successful and successful so that now we have knowledge of being able to jump across these creeks. Right. Right. Okay. So that is why in adulthood we may be more cautious is because we have actually tried to uh, in some creeks but you also have the quality of hesitation this quality of hesitation because no one's died before very few people are willing to try it to see what it's like almost always death comes as a combination with a grudge or a grievance. In other words, I feel so badly about what happened, I'm willing to die to try to fix it. Until death actually comes, and then the fear will come. He is not just because he is, um, uh, you know, uh, intent on fixing a problem to the point of putting himself in danger. That's one thing, but then getting into danger is something else sure. because when that danger comes the fear of death 
come. And the reason that the fear of death is coming is because basically all of these old ideas. Now, the very funny thing about it is um, that uh, the people who can recognize, can see that life is temporary, that life has value, but all life comes to an end and we can see that, then that means that death begins to lose its sting because we know it's inevitable. We know that it's going to happen. But when Hinduism and Christianity come by, they add an element of doubt to that. They can't prove it, but they will give you the doubt that, oh, maybe death does not have a sting because you don't really die. It's only the body that dies. Okay, this actually, uh, that belief, that system that's taught by the religions actually is what causes consternation and confusion. It brings doubt to the situation because the clarity, obvious point is, is that everything dies and dead things stay dead. Christianity and belief systems and religions bring it up in the sense of, oh no, just because you die doesn't mean that you die. You'll spontaneously reappear or something. And this actually people um, intellectually can see that that's not true, but emotionally they want it to be so because they're already quite afraid to die. They think that death has a sting and the only way to stop the sting is by stopping the death. The answer to that is in the Buddhist context is no, death does not have a sting. We need to see that too. The death is inevitable, but the sting of death is not. Mm -hmm. All right, so this person then is then caught into this wilderness of views. A wilderness of views is doubt. A thicket of views. We hold cling, we hold tightly to things when we know it's not true. Here's a really good example uh, that's coming up right now is that the Republicans know that a lot of children are dying because of their issues on guns. And yet they cling to their guns with a thicket of views. They know they're wrong, but they cling heartily to that. Right? In other words, they refuse to see what they know is correct. They've seen it enough to know that something needs to be done about guns, but they wouldn't dare do it. I have a question um, mm -hmm. regarding doubt. Um, so I think we, we may have discussed this before, but I think it's it's worth bringing up again because I had the question. Uh, how would you differentiate between doubt and healthy skepticism? Like at what point does skepticism become a hindrance? Skepticism never does become a hindrance. Hmm. Skepticism is merely the request for information. Hmm. Okay, stay skeptical remain skeptical skeptical is not someone who is in doubt doubt is the person who is not skeptical enough and so he's going to start half believing it 
That's where the doubt comes from. A skeptic is not in doubt. He's just saying, no, I reject your statement offhand. Go bring me proof. So, and then what is doubt? How would you define doubt? Is, doubt is the, means that oh. people will half believe anything. Hmm. So the skeptic might say, I don't believe in it in anything. I just need to see proof and evidence for whatever it is I believe may be, whatever may be true. And then the person that is in doubt uh, may just say, I, I do believe, like I, the person in doubt misbelieves. Like what is kind of a, like, like what would an example be of someone that is in doubt but not in skepticism? Okay, here you go. On Sunday morning, the old lady goes to church and tells everybody that she's feeling poorly today and they and she asks them to pray for her. And immediately after the church service, she goes to the hospital. Right? Why did she go to the hospital? Didn't she believe that the prayer was going to work? No, but she wanted it to work. She half believed that it would work, but she doubted that it would work. A skeptic will walk into the church and everybody wants to pray for them. And you then you say, well, give me some evidence that prayer works. And if you've got some proof, then maybe we'll try it out. And the Christians will all say, oh, we don't need proof. We're going to do it anyway. But then they'll all go to the hospital after all. Hmm. So, so you would say then that doubt is pure disbelief, or a skepticism is kind of an openness. Yeah, skepticism is request for information. So, let's say you take someone that they go to the grocery store or something like that, you know, and they um, they go to they go to find some bananas, right? And they begin okay. to doubt that the bananas will improve their day are, are, are they they're, 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 they're thinking to themselves like no these bananas are useless they will be bad for my digestion whatnot is that person caught up in the hindrance of doubt like how would you kind of describe that you know like i i would say that that momentary point is quite irrelevant okay that whether you bought the bananas or not is irrelevant whether you, what the thought that you had when you were buying those uh, those uh, bananas were irrelevant. Now, if you think that the bananas are poison and you go around advertising to all the people, you stand in front of the banana stand there at the grocery store and everybody who comes by with uh, to buy bananas will say, oh, don't buy these bananas, they're bad. Hmm. Okay. Now there's somebody standing there with the bananas saying, oh, no, these are bad. What are you going to do? I, I wouldn't buy them. Right, because you are a doubtful, ordinary dick. <laughs> a wise person is going to go inspect the bananas to see if they're good or not. They're not going to pay any attention to somebody standing there saying the bananas are bad. I mean, it depends. Like, bananas are a very low priority item. So if someone's telling me don't buy the bananas, there are other things I like more than bananas, and I'll just get one of those, you know. Uh, that's That would be my approach is, 
it's very low stakes whether or not I buy the bananas. It doesn't really matter if I buy them or not. So, in other words, you're not willing to take the time for um, an evaluation. That right. you're not going to pay wise attention to the bananas. Right. I'd just go get a watermelon because I'd be too lazy to inspect. Well, there's somebody standing in front of the watermelon saying, hey, don't buy these watermelons. They're no good. Well, if there were multiple people doing that, maybe I would start to inspect. Yes. Right. Now, that's the way that we're going to go here. All right. This is that we are not going to take anybody's word for anything. Right. And all, and all of these thickets of views came mainly from other people, not something that uh, each child works out for himself. That this is basically learned behavior. Or this is uh, these six uh, ways of looking at am I or am I not are uh, parts of the culture. Hmm. The Buddha says, don't pay attention to culture. Don't pay attention to tradition. Don't pay attention to uh, the common beliefs. Go do your own investigation. And when one attends unwisely, which means we're not paying close attention, not looking at things correctly, then the horizon of sensual desires will come up. Now, when we say sensual desires, almost always Westerners, because of the Catholic traditions and backgrounds and Christianity or whatnot, immediately put sex on their brain. Mm -hmm. Right? That's what sensual desires are all about in Western culture. But the Buddha is not talking about sensual desire in uh, the Christian context. He's talking about the senses the eye, the ear, the nose, the touch, and things, the physical objects that we like, we want, we desire them. So it's not just sex that he's talking about, it's all kinds of things. And sex is just one example of it. But any kinds that we want something, and most of the time that we want things, is because of unwise attention and that also because of that unwise attention ignorance arises okay what is the ignorance about going back to the bananas are they bad or are they not and you say well it's better just to avoid them because there's doubt about whether the bananas are good or not and you haven't bothered to go and do uh, your own investigation okay so doubt can become your friend in the sense that doubt, it, it kind of raises the flag that you need more investigation. Uh -huh. And the wisdom then is, is that the doubt very quickly becomes skepticism. Hmm. Okay, because doubt just remains doubt. And skepticism says, no, we're not going to have any doubt. We're just going to wait for data going to wait for information. We're going to do investigation. Right. And then doubt combined with impatience leads to anxiety and, and restlessness. Mm -hmm. But or anger, you know, it could go in one of those two directions. Right. Um, but I think the impatience certainly 
strengthens the unwholesome quality of doubt. Because doubt plus patience could be skepticism, right? And doubt plus impatience could be a um, anxiety or anger. Well, impatience above all causes all of those things regardless of what else you put into it. And impatience is nothing but jumping to a conclusion without doing an investigation. Hmm. So you could say then that impatience is just another word for doubt, insecurity, a thicket of views. And it uh, is leads to or one is not free from dukkha not free from dissatisfaction, not free from suffering. You know, it's funny, at my freshman year of college, I had a professor and I, I remember interrogating him in office hours with all my questions. And he said, you know what you need? And I said, what? And he said, patience. <laughs> Take some time. Mm -hmm. Glenn, that'll help. He was right. <laughs> Yeah. All right, so let's now go. We have actually stopped at a place, yes. and now we're going to yeah. start back up. But now we're going to start in the wholesome way, because the Buddha's now just been talking about for the past page or so on unwholesome uh, attention, unwise attention. Mm. Okay. In other words, listening to what people tell you to do and then having doubts about it and going along to get along, et cetera, and all of that kind of stuff that the psychology knows about. So here we begin at verse nine. Bhikkhus, a well-taught noble disciple who has regard for the noble ones and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, who has regard for true men and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, understands what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. Since that is so, he does not attend to those things unfit for attention, and he attends to those things that are fit for attention. Okay. Now, what that means would be is the things that are fit for attention are the things that are right in front of you and the things that are unfit for attention would be off into the past, mm -hmm. off into the future, off into someplace else, off into the speculations about death, old age, etc., rather than looking at it right here, right now. Right. Then he says, what are the things unfit for attention that he does not attend to? These are things such that when he attends to them, the unarisen taint of sensual desire arises in him. And then we go back to page six. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi has chosen to put in the lips here. Um, but the Buddha repeats this stuff for the effect of the audience. The unarising taints of being arises in him and the unarising taint of being increases. The unarising taint of ignorance arises in him and the arisen taint of ignorance increases. These are things such unfit for attention that he attends to. And what are the things that are fit for attention that he does not attend to? 
okay? These things um, unfit for attention that he does not intend to. And what are the things fit for attention that he does attend to? These are things such that when he does attend to them, the unarisen taint of sensual desire does not arising in him, etc. And so we go back and we read off of uh, page six. The unarisen taint of being does not arise in him. The arisen taint of being is abandoned. The unarisen taint of ignorance does not arise in him, and the arisen taint of ignorance is abandoned. These are things fit for um, uh, for attention that he does not attend to. Okay, so uh, going back, these are the things fit for attention that he does uh, attend to by not attending to things unfit for attention and by attending to things fit for attention, unarisen taints do not arise in him and the arisen taints are abandoned. Okay, so down through these first 10 verses, all of this stuff is a setup for verse number 11 because verse number 11 is the point of the taint that's to be abandoned by seeing. Okay, he attends wisely. This is dukkha. In other words, right here in the present moment, this is it. Mm. I can see it. I can see what the mind is doing. Mm. He attends wisely. This is the origin of, of dukkha. Oh, if I think this way, then that will happen. In other words, he begins to see the sensual uh, desire. He sees his being. He sees uh, this ignorance that arises in him. And then he re recollects or can see this is the cessation of suffering. Okay. Hmm. Now, the thing that's really interesting here when he says this is dukkha, this is the cause of dukkha, and this is the cessation of dukkha. Mm. Is all done in the present moment. And yet Western Buddhism is all about, oh, you've got to do a whole bunch of stuff for a whole long period of time. You've got to develop and develop and develop and develop or whatever. And then finally, you can see what it is like to be end of suffering. Mm. But this is not correct. If you read this correctly, you can see right here and there in front of you that that cessation of suffering is immediate. As soon as you see it and see what's causing it, you can do something about it right then and there. Mm. And that is almost a heresy in Western Buddhism. How dare you feel good right now? You got to sit on and squat on the floor for 10,000 hours, and then the common machine will give you Shaktipat, and then you can feel good. But you can't be free from suffering right now. You know, it's a great point. Oftentimes in the West, when people talk about meditation retreats, they talk about it of, oh, it's a great challenge. You know, it was a big adventure. It was a challenge. You know, I sat and listened to my monkey mind go on and on the entire time, and I didn't know what to do. You know, you never hear someone say, oh, I was just light and happy and free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you never hear that, you know. When right, and that's, traumatize. A, yep. and that's the teaching of the Buddha, to be free from it right now with your wise attention. Right. And 
we also um, when he attends wisely and uh, this is the cessation and he attends. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. In other words, attending wisely, looking. When do we look? When do we pay attention? When do we attend wisely? When we remember to. And by seeing dukkha and the cause of dukkha, we do something about it. We take the right effort to move out of the dukkha into the dukkha. Uh, and so you can see that right in here is the Eightfold Noble Path already built right in, the way to do this. This is the way that leads to the cessation of suffering. Now, when he attends wisely in this way, three fetters are abandoned in him. Again, not the word asava, the word fetter. Mm. The word uh, kilesa is here. Mm. Three kilesas are abandoned in him through wise attention. So the asava, the three, uh, uh, the asava uh, that is um, uh, there for not seeing becomes three fetters that are abandoned by wise attention. When he attends wisely, these three fetters are abandoned in him. One is personality view. Well, personality view is exactly what we were talking about in step six and in uh, seven and eight, in the sense of who am I, what am I, what was I in the past, what will I be in the future, in other words, we're mulling over the past, mulling over the future, thinking about what's going to happen and all of that kind of stuff. And we now begin to understand that's just personality view, trying to define who I am. Where, in fact, we've already discussed the fact that uh, from the perspective of uh, being free from dukkha, the one who did get the dukkha, then the one who understood the dukkha, and then the one who became free from the dukkha, is that all the same guy? No. Nope. No, he's changed, hasn't he? That's what we mean by the personality view, means that we have now changed our position from being something permanent and long-lasting into something temporary. Here's an example of that is police records. Right. If you did something in 1976, we're not going to give you a job now. Because you were the one who did that in 1976. Right. Right. OK, so that's the way that that our um, uh, culture operates is, is that you are the one who did that in uh, 1976. Therefore, you're the still the one who did that in 1976, even though it's been nearly 50 years. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, the lack of personality view can help create a feeling of forgiveness and also generosity. Um, but it can also um, eradicate gratitude, <laughs> right? Because if you um, don't have personality view, you can forgive the person more easily that committed a crime, you know, a year ago. But you also may not be as grateful to them for something that they did a year ago that was that was pleasant or wholesome. It depends upon whether the effect of that generosity is still there. 
Hmm. Okay. That in fact, Bhikkhu hasn't given me anything since he died. But the effects of what he did give me are still there, and I still hold great amounts of uh, gratitude. Hmm. That in fact, I never met the Buddha, but I'm still quite grateful for him because of the results that I can experience in the here and now. Hmm. Could you also perhaps say that about a negative uh, effect? Like, you know, um, uh, let's say someone harmed you, you know, 10 years ago and you have a wounded leg and your leg is still wounded 10 years later. You know, oh, I've got that example right here. Yeah, yeah, you do have a wounded leg. <laughs> yeah. But but anger is ill will, so which is unwholesome. Exactly. And I did carry some ill will for the guy who did that for a while. Mm. But I got over it. Now I don't even remember much of the incident, and I certainly don't remember the guy's name. I don't remember his face. I don't even remember what the motorbike looked like that hit me. Right. Uh, I, I've I, forgotten I, all about it. I've let the past go. But I, I still have to deal with the leg. So I have a question. Why do you think, this is a little bit off topic from the Suda, but, and I want to return to the Suda, but just out of curiosity, why do you think people often remember things with rose-colored uh, glasses? You know, like like childhoods and, you know. We obviously don't. Hmm. We don't remember things with rose-colored glasses. We remember things with, gosh, what what would be the other one? How about uh, uh, smoke? <laughs> That's funny, because for me, I find it's rose-colored. You know, like when I think back to college, I might think, oh, you know, that was such a nice time. You know, and, and I definitely focus on the positive elements when it was actually quite stressful a lot of the time, you know. Actually, if you do any reminiscing at all, yeah, we will start with the pleasant and quickly go right into the unpleasant, which you just did. I was just waiting for you to do that. I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just stepped right into it. Yeah, we start with the rose-colored, but we go right into the charcoal sure. when we're in the past. That's why the past is dangerous. We start into it with pleasant memories, but those pleasant memories will be immediately interrupted with all of our bad feelings. Hmm. That you can't stay in good feelings about the past because it's a mixed bag. Hmm. Okay, so this is the whole point about the personality view is more of not do I exist or not, but whether is it permanent or not. And when you recognize that things are constantly changing, things are in motion, and that things change very quickly that your mood changes a lot. On a regular basis, things keep changing over and over and over again. And so when we recognize that, when, then we can see, well, he's just having a bad day rather than he's an, uh, an asshole. He's an asshole as a personality view. He's having a bad day. That's more correct. Right. 
Mm -hmm. But now comes that second one here on this that is the one that seems to have been left out of Western Buddhism completely. Mm. And that's this one about he um, he abandons personality view. Then number two is doubt, and we'll go back to that. And number three is adherence to rules and observances. This is a very, very poor translation. A A better way of translating it is we do what we're told to do. We adhere to society. We do what we're told to do. We want to fit into society. We wear clothes. Why do you wear clothes? Society. Exactly. You wear clothes because all the other humans wear clothes. When you go to out in the cow pasture, the cows are not wearing clothes. Do you take your clothes off? No. Nope. Why is that? Because the cows don't care, right? Nope. Whether you've got clothes on or not. But if some <laughs> other human sees you out naked there with the cows, you want to go to the police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because he's adhering to observances, to rituals, to the rules, to the laws, and all of that kind of stuff. Now, why would the Buddha be here saying that wise attention means that we give up our attachments to rights, rules, and rituals? That's because the rights, rules, and rituals themselves were originally designed to reduce suffering and they wind up causing more. Okay, look at an example going back to that because of the moment gun control or gun legislation. Because you've got two sides, some of them want it and some of them don't want it. If they ever get a compromise, the compromise that they will come up with will be ineffective. Because it's not solving the problem of the gun control, it's solving the problem of cooperation between the people. Mm. And so you do not want to compromise with the Republicans. You want to vote them out of office. That's what you want to do, if that's your point. Okay, because they are already in a position of adhering to their ideas. And people don't change their ideas much that we continue to say this is right, and this is wrong without ever doing an investigation to find out what is right and what is wrong. We just adhere to a set of standards. Now, in physics and in chemistry and in mathematics and in physics, generally the rules that have been laid down to were tested and retested and tested again, and they have been, they have come down as something that works. The laws that are passed by governments or the regulations passed by religions have never gone through any scrutiny, have never gone through any test. That somebody just says there's a God and look how many millions of people believe it without anybody ever seeing it. Sure. So. Go ahead. Yeah. So do you think skepticism can be kind of a prison, though, to some sense in the sense of I think if a truly skeptical person would never really believe in anything at all, that could be very freeing. That could be extremely freeing. 
but but couldn't you couldn't you consider that also kind of a you know um that seems kind of scary almost to believe in nothing at all you know well i didn't say to believe in nothing at all have you seen nothing at all if you have seen nothing at all then you can believe in it i'm seeing nothing at all right now <laughs> Well, I know we're playing with words in that regard. Yeah. So, but the whole <laughs> the whole point, though, is that your issue of skepticism and remaining skeptical is because the skeptic is not gathering data. He's just staying skeptical. Hmm. He's not looking at the data. He's not looking at the reality of the situation. He's not looking at what's going on. He's just, in fact, that kind of skepticism is exactly the same thing as doubt. Mm. Interesting. Okay. That's, okay. That's great. So there's two different kinds of skepticism. One is doubt and the other one is investigating. Right. Okay. Now, uh, in the real... Uh, in a way, these three fetters have been rearranged in other suttas there as a different arrangement. And it looks like that what's really going on is, is that our adherence to rites, rules, and rituals and personality view are deeply, deeply bedded together. They're deeply bedded together in the sense of I am who I am because I adhere to these set of rules and these set of standards. Hmm. And so the, the adherence to the rules is defining of the personality view. And since the rules don't change, the personality doesn't change either. So those are the two that are wrapped together so tightly. And the third element, the doubt, that's the one that needs some investigation through other suttas. That in fact, the ones that come together with this is sutta number 48, sutta number 24, and sutta number two, all work together on this point. And mm. that is the, the issue of doubt. And the way that it's referred to in um, Sutta number 24 is the eradication of doubt about what is and what is not the path. All right, well, right up above, we had um, this is the origin of suffering. He attends wisely. This is cessation of suffering. He attends wisely. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. When he attends wisely to this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering, because he can see that he's attending wisely, the doubt is eradicated. Because hmm. he can tell the path is working. Right. The, he's practicing the path. He's attending wisely. He's remembering to attend wisely. When he attends wisely, he has a choice about making a change. When he does make the change over and over again, he becomes uh, joyful that he can make that change. Right? right. This is the Eightfold Noble Path. And so in Sutta number 24, it has that statement of knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path. Hmm. 
If we are if we are only uh, uh, let us say sure about what is the path, but we're not sure about what is not the path, then we're still unsure. Um, I, I have a question. So um, when the Buddha talks about the personality view in terms of the past and the future, you know, did I exist in the past? Will I exist in the future, et cetera? Is the issue here the thinking about the past and the future or is the issue the personality view in the context of the past and the future? Because um, I, I know you've, you've said, you've taught many times that thinking about the past or the future is unwholesome. Is that because of personality view or is that because there's something about thinking about the past and the future that isn't wholesome? How do you kind of uh, differ? Well, it, it has to do again with me, 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 my past as opposed to the past. Hmm. The past is just the past, except that. The past is unknown. The past is already dead. It's already buried. The history book, for instance, is not the past. If you read a history book, you're reading that history book right here in the present moment. So if you are now in this present moment reading about the Hundred Years' War, and you then in your mind's eye place yourself in that Hundred Years' War in the sense of, oh, well, I would have done this or I would have done that. Now we're interjecting personality view back into the past of something that was not in our own past. Right. We're inventing that past. Right. All right. So if we can see that that's the the case is, is that it's not so much of history. History is just history. The past got me in it. All right. So the kinds of things that happened when I was a little kid. When I was a little kid, you hear that? Yep. Just and that's a convention when when things happened when I was a little kid, if that little kid was not there, then those things would not be in my memory here now. But when I remember those things, it's because the data is there, but I don't interject myself is as oh, I am doing that. So I remember a three year old pooping in his pants. But I cannot say I pooped in my pants when I was three years old because that is not correct because the I has changed. I am not that three-year-old. I just have a memory of that three-year-old. Right. Okay, so that's the whole point is, is that um, uh, we have to see that the past is just the past in the sense of it's just history until I interject personality into it. And that's what makes it my past. And that's why it's subject to suffering. In other right. words, if we could study the Hundred Years War and say they did this and they did that and they did this and they did that, and now I understand history. But if I read that and say they did this and I don't like it and they did this and they should have done this, that and the other thing, <laughs> now I'm introducing me into it. Right. Of how how history ought to have been. Guess right. what? That's how historians write their history books. <laughs> it's almost impossible for a historian to actually give accurate history 
almost all the historians put their version or their view of what they wanted to happen into it. Right. Yeah, there there's a, a, a saying I read a while back that it's kind of pointless to read a biography because it tells you more about the bi- biographer than it does about the person you're reading about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> uh and so that's also the the issue of history is, is that history is always just somebody's opinion of what happened. Right. And we don't really know, and there's no way to find out. Here's an example of that. In the actual old literature, uh, when Caesar was struck by the knife that Brutus was holding, He, uh, in the Latin, it says, and you too, Brutus. But when Shakespeare does Julius Caesar, when uh, when, uh, Brutus stabs Caesar, Caesar says, and you too, my son, (laughs) et tu, pila. Okay, so in that regard, which is correct? Which did Caesar say? Did Caesar say you to Brutus or you to my son? The answer to that is it's totally irrelevant. Nobody gives a flying rip. <laughs> but Shakespeare changed that because of his own view. Right. It made it more dramatic when it's my son killing me. Right. Mm-hmm. He was a great so, psychologist, Shakespeare. So that's an example of of that kind of thing. History, we don't know. In fact, we don't even know whether Brutus was there or not. That it could have been some enemy of of Julius Caesar that wanted to implicate Brutus also and make him a villain. Brutus may have not been. We don't know anything. We don't even know if there was a Julius Caesar. We don't know what happened in 46 B.C. We don't even know where the Rubicon River is. We've got a pretty good idea because there's no other place for it to be other than that river that's on this map now. But there may have been a Rubicon River that existed in 2000 years ago that doesn't exist today. And we don't know. Right. I I think in part the the utility of understanding history is only to understand how other people alive in the present day understand themselves. Because people like to understand themselves through the context of history. So if Mm -hmm. you know that, you have another understanding of how people think about themselves. But do you really know about what happened back then? No. (laughs) Exactly. We don't know what happened way back when. Guess what? I don't know what happened at all. Uh, Let us say that day that I just referred to. That day of a three-year-old who pooped in his pants. No memories of the rest of the day. What was for breakfast? What were I do? What was this child doing that prevented him from going to the bathroom? Right. In that regard, it was swinging on a swing. <laughs> well, so what happened, and who changed the pants, and and uh, what kind of fussing for the three-year-old, and all of that kind of stuff. None of that is in the memory. Uh, are, are you familiar with Howard Zinn? 
Howard Zinn. Yeah, he wrote this very influential book called The People's History of the United States. And it was a history of the United States from the perspective of all the different people that were antagonized by the white colonists, you know, like the Native Americans, the blacks. Um, oh, the, that that the, kind of history book that they don't want in the high schools in Texas. Well, we actually had it in my high school here in, in Seattle, but yeah, not in Texas. No, they don't want that kind of history book there. But, you know, one thing I think he understood and the reason he did that is because he understood that history is culture. You know, it's not history is not necessarily history, but it's part of culture. It's part of how we interact and think about ourselves. The same goes for our own personal history. You know, where when we're thinking about Don Murado at age three or Robert at age 10, you know, we're using that conceptualization to help us understand the present moment. But the problem with it, I think, as the Buddha describes it, is that that can lead to a lot of tanha and a lot of needless suffering and entrapping oneself in self-limiting mm -hmm. behaviors and beliefs and, and all this. And we're paying wise attention to what I was in the past and not paying wise attention to this present moment. Right. And people love right. themselves with that. Mm -hmm. And historians are some of the most miserable people that you'll find. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, it, it makes sense. I haven't All spent right. time with them, but yeah. So, so this yeah. issue then of doubt that uh, is listed here needs some context because the freedom from doubt is freedom from how the, uh, the dukkha happens, how uh, we can see it, and the pathway out of that. And when we have the knowledge, because we can actually visit and be in that third noble truth, we know that it exists. And so that's where the eradication of the doubt comes from. So long as people um, are, let us say, practicing meditation, whatever advantage that they're getting, but they do not see that third noble truth. They do not see this is what it's like to be free from suffering. So long as they don't have that, there will always be doubt about what is it like, what's going on to be happening. This is why there's so much magical belief in the word enlightenment. Mm. The funny part about that is the word enlightenment had no magic in it. It had warfare. It was a conflict between science and religion and between uh, 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 aristocrats and commoners. And it was against uh, uh, between science and culture that was heavily influenced by the church. That was what the Age of Enlightenment was. But now that Buddhism has been saddled with that word, it's been saddled with a magical view of that word. What is enlightenment? What is a guy that's enlightened? And we don't know because we make it highfalutin. Hmm. Way up there. We put Jesus way up there in the sky with Buddha. Uh, I mean, Buddha up there in the sky with Jesus, rather than recognizing, no, it's right here in front of us. It's right close by. It's not far away up in the sky. Hmm. 
Okay. And so it's good then uh, here that Bhikkhu Bodhi did uh, this is the way rather than this is the path because the word path has the idea that it's far away rather than this is the way. Mm. And so I use the analogy of putting the key in the door and turning the lock and pushing on the door and the door opens. That's all there is to it. Mm. In the sense that the, you see the door of Dukkha, you put the key in, you turn it to re, uh, to release the uh, the fetter or the asava, and then the door is open. There you are in that state of freedom from suffering, the third noble truth. And so the way that we got there was by putting the key in the door and turning the crank. We didn't have to travel 10,000 miles to get to the door. That's a path, a path to the door where the door is right in front of you right here. Here it is. This is the issue of the uh, the point about what is knowledge and vision of the way. And what is not the way? What is not the path? Well, guess what? Before we thought adherence to rites and rituals and personality view was the way. God loves me. When I die, my soul is going to go to heaven. Right? That's a personality view, but it's not liberating at all. Right. So these three fetters, these fetters of personality view, rights, rules, and rituals, and doubt about what is and is not the path. These are the three stakes that bring about, um, well, the taints that should be abandoned by seeing. These three uh, items are also known, especially in Western Buddhism, as the three points of the sotapan, that when the sotapan understands personality view, when he understands rites, rules, and rituals, and when he understands what is the path and what is not the path, and he has no doubt about what is and what is not the path, then this is normally referred to, or in some circles is referred to as the sotapan. However, sutta number 48, is much more clear that the real issue of Sotapan is, is that after one sees these things, he gets so wrapped up into them that he is eager for this Dhamma. He's enthusiastic about this Dhamma, that he only pays attention to this Dhamma, that he's on lookout for this is suffering, this is the end of the suffering on a regular basis. That he's got nothing else left to do in his life but to look at, is this suffering or what? Right. So when we get wrapped up into these things, when we get, begin to see that we're going to lead our life according to this Four, four Noble Truths, that's the Sotapan, is a complete redirection, a complete reevaluation, so that our only point in life is to be free from suffering, to be free from it. Go ahead. Yeah, question on that. Do you think that a sotopan would would and it seems to me that it would almost be necessary to ordain, right? You know, although you could maybe argue that that's attachment to right rules and ritual, rights, rules and rituals. Yeah. 
But I think it's kind of difficult to really live full Four Noble Truths without ordaining. Like, that's what ordaining is supposed to do, is to make it so you can fully pursue that. Yes. Let's first off start off with that in Thailand and in other Buddhist cultures, that there are several different reasons for people who will become ordained. Can be family pressure, it can be it's expected from culture, all of the rights, rules, and rituals, you see, is one of the reasons why people will become ordained. Right. But a Westerner who is ordained, you can automatically assume that he ordained because he cared enough about the Dhamma to devote his life to it. Right. Which is another way of saying that those Dhamma dudes, those guys who pay $2,000 for a retreat and go to the retreat for 10 days uh, once a year, they're not dedicated to the Dhamma enough to be soda pond. So all of the people who were on soda pond on Reddit that are claiming to be soda pond because they've had an experience here, that or the other, the more likely possibility is that they're not. Because if they really were soda pond, they wouldn't be on Reddit talking about soda pond. They'd be uh, in a temple talking to the abbot about soda pond. Right. <laughs> hmm. So that's the way of looking at it is, is that, yes, the dedication, the dedication to the path can be seen by those who are actually dedicated to the path because they actually do that. That's what they're on about. Sure. And so this is the first a group of fetters that can or the uh, the fetters and the Asaba that can be abandoned by seeing. So oh, this oh. is, in fact, the whole sutta right here. But we've got okay. others. I, I have another question about that. So, mm-hmm. you know, so pretty much all of your students are, I think, all basically, you know, are lay practitioners. Um so do you think that um that uh that that a student of yours would not truly be a sotopan unless they left and decided to go ordain or maybe did something like what Eric's doing where they had, you know, some type of money that allowed them to you know just kind of exist as a sotopan, you know, like uh like Eric for example is very dedicated to the dhamma his whole life is the Dhamma. You know, he goes around, he relaxes, he has a good time. Let me an- let goes. me go ahead and answer the question without you completely stating it, because you'll take a while. All right. Oh, so, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I know. I, I have my the, an- <laughs> the answer to that is, is that Sotapan is not an event. Sotapan is a process. And mm. that the, in the sutras, it talks about the path and the fruit. What I just mentioned was the full fruit of Soda Park, the one who is actually now fully dedicated. But there's a beginning of the path, and that is that when one has practiced the, the Dhamma, um, practiced Anapanasati, practiced the Eightfold Noble Path, as opposed to, per se, practicing meditation or practicing Mahasi or practicing Metta, that's all over there someplace. And let's talk about someone who's actually practicing the Eightfold Noble Path. He comes to the point where by investigating, by remembering to investigate, 
by uh, making a change over and over and over again, he begins to get the confidence that he can make a change in his life. When you have the, uh, the, the pointer that you know without a doubt that you can come out of your dukkha, then that is the first step of the soda pond. That first step is noble. It is super mundane. It is a factor of the path, but it's the first step of the path. So the beginning of the path is when you know without a doubt that you can eradicate this dukkha. The fruit of the soda pond is being overjoyed at being able to do it. Mm. And so the fruit of the path and the and the uh, uh, the first step of the path are very close together. But some people take years and years to go from that that first step to the full fruit. Many people can gain the path, uh, uh, the 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 first step of the path. But it takes so that would be then that there are a lot of lay people then who can take that first step of the path and gain great, enormous value out of the Dhamma, then they begin to think, how can I make the next step? What can I do to completely immerse myself in the Dhamma? Right. That's where the ordination comes in. Hmm. Okay. There are other reasons for ordination, but the correct reason for ordination is because someone is already partially noble. They already know that they can do this. And so now they're just looking for a venue. They're looking for an opportunity. Right. Okay. Well, guess what? I would say even in the West, for people who are not interested in ordination, going and hanging out at the Watt and hanging around other nobles, those who have ordained, is the right way to go. That was one of the things that I would uh, recommend to all students, is let's stop practicing on our own Let's stop paying a lot of money to go to a retreat that's led by someone who is not ordained. I'd go start hanging out in the watts. Because hmm. you're more than likely going to find a good teacher in the watt than you are going to some meditation class. Hmm. You know, it's funny. We're going back to South America in June. I'm curious uh -huh. as to whether or not there are any watts in Colombia. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> yeah, look it up. Go see what's there. Yeah, that would be fun. I know that there are what's in Mexico. Huh. I know for sure there are what's in Mexico. Not only that, but that what in those what's, especially one of the what's in Mexico, had been there for like 30 years. I mean, it's an old established place. Oh, wow. Very and cool. so the possibility of what's being in Colombia are quite high. All right, well, let's go ahead and make some short work. We've already spent about an hour and a half on the first three pages of this, but the rest of the suit is only another three pages. Let's see if we can do that pretty quickly. Yeah. And in fact, we've already talked about it. So let's look at the one about restraining. What taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by restraining? Here, bhikkhus, reflecting wisely, abides with the eye faculty restrained. When taints, vexations, and fevers might arise in one who abides with the mind, with the eye faculty unrestrained, there are no taints, vexations, or fever in one who abandons, uh, who abides with the eye faculty restrained. 
reflecting wisely, he abides with the ear faculty, etc., like that. So now we're talking about restraining the senses. What do we mean by restraining the senses is to recognize that just sitting here, you can make yourself feel good. You don't have to go chase after something. But when we um, are attending unwisely, um, we don't restrain the eyes. An example of that would be watching porn. The kid is not restraining his eyes. He just goes after what he likes. And you found you probably heard that people are getting addicted to pornography to where 50 years ago, pornography almost didn't exist at all. Sure. It almost didn't exist. It existed uh, uh, in very, very small ways. Um, let us say like a telephone number on the bathroom wall was about the only pornography that there was, or maybe somebody drawing a picture or something. Uh, but nowadays on the internet, there is all kinds of pornography and people will get addicted to it. Well, guess what? The pornography doesn't have to be all explicitly sexual. Hmm. That in fact, this addiction to the cell phone is what we're talking about. That the people who are on their cell phone on social media, they're not restraining their senses. Hmm. The same thing is true about television, that we don't restrain our senses. Luckily enough, though, with the internet, and with YouTube, you can restrain the senses by being careful about what you're watching. So this is the way of looking at that we restrain the senses by choosing what's going to be wholesome. And what's not going to be wholesome, and we restrain the senses away from that. So um, when the monks are out walking for Pendabot, there is a routine. And that it has to do with one or two bow lengths. Now, you know, a, a, a long bow is almost about the same size as a human. So you can think of uh, this fathom long body or the um, two meters, four meters. That's how far in front that you should be looking. So the, 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 the eyes of the monks are intentionally downcast, looking at the road that they're going, plotting their path for the next 20, 30, or 40 steps that they're going to make. But they're not lollygagging. They're not looking at this house and that house. They're not looking at the girls in the windows. They're not looking at stuff. They're restraining their senses when they're out in public. Right. OK, this is one of the reasons why monks don't go shopping is because shopping is intentionally not restraining the eyes. Right. OK, especially when it's a gatherer. The difference between a hunter and a gatherer is, is that the, the hunter has his eyes restrained. Mm -hmm. The example is the two hunters, both of them got a, uh, a sphere and they see a, a wild hawk. And that wild hog sees him and takes off running through the thicket. If hmm. they keep their eye on that hog and keep looking at him and keep noting him, they'll be able to catch him. Right. But if they become distracted and are not watching that hog, then they'll miss him. The, the hog will be able to hide from them. Okay. That's different then from gathering. Hunting requires the eye to be restrained. 
gathering requires the eye to not be restrained. Mm. Sure. Okay. To note what's worth looking at. Well, uh, in that regard, on the porch here, there is nothing to restrain the eyes from. Everything is useful, valuable, and wholesome. Because that oak tree out there, not only tree, that palm tree out there does not have any attachment or desire for it. But gatherers who are going shopping, their intention is to grab something. This is mine. Right. This is why we need to restrain the eyes. Is because if we restrain the eyes, then we don't want anything. And I think this is also why you you would put seeing before restraining. Because in the Paticca Samapada, if you just see something and you can catch it before the like it or don't like it emerges, you can just see and you don't need to restrain anything. Because right. you're, you're wise. That's a good something. point. Okay. Now, the next one is actually quite important. This one I really, really like. The restraining is something for lay people not so much to do, but this one uh, is a, a very important point because we need to. Never mind. The mouse, the mouse just fell off. <laughs> so it's over the edge. Uh-huh. But uh, let's let's look at the uh, taints that are to be abandoned by using. <laughs> what taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by using? Here, bhikkhus, reflecting wisely, uses robes only for the protection from cold, from protection from heat, from protection from contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, winds, suns, and creepy things, and only for the purpose of concealing the private parts. Okay, so this is what we mean by the robe. We can take that as laymen and talk about it in the sense of, well, how, what kind of clothing are we going to wear and what's the use and purpose for the clothing? Mm-hmm. Notice that here he did not talk about fashion. Yep. Did not talk about fitting in. He's only talking about protecting the private parts. Well, some private parts we know are private and other private parts are private, you know, based upon the society. For instance, in some societies, the nose and the mouth or on women are considered a private part and you need a burqa. Right. Right. Okay. So that mean this whole point about private parts may not be wise. That's again a social item, but it certainly can cause dukkha if you're not adhering to those particular kinds of rules. Okay. But the point is, is that we only want to have enough clothing for protection from uh, the cold, from the heat. From uh, contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, creeping things, and only for the purpose of concealing the private parts. The next one is actually the one that I remember so well. Reflecting wisely, he uses arm foods, neither for amusement, nor for intoxication, nor for the sake of physical beauty and attraction, but only for the endurance and continuation of the body. For enduring comfort and assisting the holy life, considering thus shall shall terminate old feelings without arising new feelings, and I shall be healthy and blameless, and shall live in comfort. Now that little poem that I uh, is actually in the suttas is poetry, and that in the uh, this is done in prose, but we did actually 
<clears throat> at the retreat at Watch Someone Moke, there's this little piece of paper that's ubiquitous all over the place, yep. and everyone yep. should get a copy of it, and that's the food reflection. Yep, I remember it. Mm -hmm. To attend wisely to eating our food. Right. Not for aggrandizement or for the purpose of the uh, fattening or um, uh, for uh, the taste of the food, but only for the nourishment and continuation of the body. In other words, we can't stop eating. Right. But we can be mindful of what we're eating. Sure. Reflecting wisely, he uses medications also and using and um, also, he uses a replacing for the protection. He uses uh, a resting place. That would be housing for the protection of cold, heat, gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and creeping things, and only for the purpose of warding off the perils of the climate and for enjoying retreat. Well, mm -hmm. this porch does all of that. Mm -hmm. I don't need much of anything more than that. Okay. Right. But look at the edifice complex that humans have. The house I live in is who I am. And the bigger the mansion, the better my face. Right. America has actually made um, a tremendous amount of trouble for the people of the, uh, the uh, because of the, let us call them zoning laws, but it's also uh, in the construction industry, it has to do with the percentage of profit. In other words, if I build a house that costs a million dollars, then I'll get more profit than if I build a house that costs $10,000. Right. Right. So that plus the zoning has made this a big problem in places like the United States to where a yurt, or a tiny house, all of that is all people really need. And yet you wind up with hundreds of thousands, millions of people homeless because of the, the lack of adequacy being adequate. In other words, why don't we build houses that are adequate? Why do we have to build mansions for a few and leave so many other people homeless? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's a little bit of a sidetrack, but I saw a little documentary the other day about how fossil fuels have led to inequality that has been heretofore unknown in the history of humanity because mm -hmm. they created such a large energy surplus beyond what we ever needed or had over thousands of years that the people that captured the vast majority of that surplus now live, you know, highly distorted existences compared to the rest. And I thought it was interesting to connect that to fossil mm -hmm. fuels. Right. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that part. happened around the turn of the last century so that you had the railroad barons, yep. you had uh, Carnegie and Mellon and, um, uh, oh, Ford, that whole crowd. Um, uh, Biltmore, that group of super rich oligarchs that they had in the United States. We still have that system, except that now the fuel is not so much of um, fossil fuels, but fossil fuels now have a competitor. Data. Big, big data. 
Right, that's the new power, is the new data. And so that's the new oligarchs with Bezos and uh, Zuckerberg and uh, Musk and all of those guys are now the new profiteers. And all of that has to do with more than adequate. Why can't we have just an adequate life and leave everything else for generosity? So the funny part about it is, is that even though a Dhamma dude practicing this will wind up having adequate medicine, adequate food, adequate housing, and adequate uh, um, clothing, to where most people who are not living the Dhamma wind up having a deficiency in one of these four. <laughs> I mean, most people in the United States, they don't have adequate medical attention because of the food systems that they have by taking corn and, and mushing it and putting it into a box. The highly processed foods means that people are not getting adequate food. Right. I have a question. It's built into the system. People don't have adequate housing. They don't have adequate food. They don't have adequate medical attention. About the only thing that we do have is adequate clothing, but nobody thinks that they've got adequate clothing. I mean, one shirt is adequate for today. Maybe two or three shirts. You can have one of them in the laundry, one of them dirty, and one of them on the line, and... and um, uh, three or four shirts is all we need, and yet in our society, people have a whole closet full of clothing, and we can't wear it all at one time. Uh, you know what's funny about all that is, I think as you get into the Dhamma, your definition of adequate changes. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I've I've noticed this, you know, with my girlfriend Sandra. You know, when um when we first started our relationship. Her adequate was like this, very uh -huh. high compared to most people. And now her adequate is is lower. She's learned to accept things more and more. And although she doesn't have a formal practice at all, she kind of gets it through osmosis from me, you know. Mm -hmm. So things like like she doesn't need to wear fancy clothes anymore. She doesn't really wear makeup that much anymore. You know, like she's just much more satisfied with just the adequate, you know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting to watch, you know, because I have. A well, that's exactly right. That, in fact, you could say that the process of the Dhamma dude is uh, lowering the bar or lowering our standards. We lower that bar our standards in all kinds of ways. That most of the time we have a set of rules or standards for our clothing and our housing and whatnot. We also have those standards for who I am. And that almost always the standards are higher than what we can meet. So my standard for housing then, or the guy's standard for housing, is going to be such that whatever housing he has right now is not up to standard. Right. And because of that, he's going to suffer. Sure. But if we can lower our standards down to what we can tolerate, then that then we can have a happy life. But then the standards start going lower and lower into the point of how little can I get away with? How little can I do? 
And that's what leads next to the next item on our list here, and that is tanks oh. to be abandoned by enduring. Go ahead. Oh, one one quick comment. Um, so I think what allows for the lowering of standards is an increase in feelings of safety and security. And precisely so. And the higher your feelings of safety and security, the lower your need becomes for external anything. And so adequate becomes less important of the external because you already feel plenty internally or much more internally than before. Exactly, exactly. Now, the next one would be for enduring because that one um, operates in the sense of enduring is now things that are actually below our standard. Mm, sure. All right. Okay. What taints bhikkhu should be abandoned by enduring? Here a bhikkhu reflexes wisely, being cold, being in the hot, being hungry and thirsty, and contact with gladflies and mosquitoes and the wind and the sun and the creeping things he endures. And here's the one that's really good. He endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words. Mm. And arisen and arisen body feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing of life. Mm. While taints, vexations, and fevers might arise in one who does not endure such things, there are no taints, vexations, and fever in one who endures them. These are called the taints that should be abandoned by enduring. Now, this one, actually, we could spend a whole lecture on, but we could sum it up where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasta talks about that when you're sick, that's a good opportunity to practice. Mm. Why? Exactly to practice it during being sick, to practice being satisfied with the body being ill, mm. with it being tired. And mosquitoes, we can endure mosquitoes by, for instance, when the mosquito bites, to not scratch it. Right. Scratching that bite is because we can't endure it. But mindfully, wisely, when we get that mosquito bite, we are only now going to take the adequate medicine that we need. And so we'll open a tube of ointment or a monkey bomb or something like that and rub that on the mosquito bite genuinely, gently, um, uh, lovingly, and the mosquito bite will handle itself. Hmm. But if we scratch it, we're going to interrupt the skin around it and make it worse because we can't endure it. Right. The same well, thing is with cold. And in fact, that was the one that I was thinking about that we spend so much time with because I've got a long story about how I learned to endure the cold. Because when uh, I left Michigan in 1978, 79, I think, when I left Michigan, I left in a way that caused a lot of trouble. I hurt my friends. I lost a lot of my stuff. In fact, it cost me a BMW motorcycle mm. because I could not endure the cold of Michigan and I hated it so much. Mm. 
So know. later, when I'm going to be a monk in North Carolina, especially above the snow line, because North Carolina gets pretty cold. Mm. And I knew that I was going to have to be dressed as a monk and that I was going to endure it. So I did. With that mindset, I could endure the cold. And I have a couple of photos where I'm standing there with snow on the ground, standing with other monks in regular robes with no socks, no hat, standing with a couple of Sri Lankans that looked like they had just come from the North Pole. Because I had learned to endure the cold, but they didn't know how to endure the cold. And so they use clothing to help. But if you don't have the clothing to help you endure the cold, then you have to do it with your mind. Hmm. Uh, you know, what's funny is I, I've also found this to be a good antidote to bad feelings is just to endure until they go away. If you can't switch them right away, let's say they're particularly pernicious. They will go away at some point Mm -hmm. without you ever saying an unkind word or, you know, taking any unkind action at all. If you endure, they will go away. The same as with the cold. The same as with anything. You know, I find endurance Mm -hmm. a really good strategy in general. And and I think we've talked about this in the past, you know, um, making time your friend, you know, instead of your enemy. Right. Time is my friend. The more time that passes, the closer this will be to being fine again. Right. You know, mm-hmm. come on, my friend. Time. And and so not being able to endure stuff also means you have no patience for it to talk. Right. And so endurance and patience are basically the same thing. And so this is how we can do it then, is that anything that we don't like and we don't want to endure, we now can see two possibilities. One is to get out of it. If you're cold, go into the house. Or if you're in the cold and you're not in the house, then we can endure the cold. I, I have a question about this as well. What would the Buddha say about distraction as a tool against, you know, um, or as a tool in, in, uh, that would help endurance, right? Like for example, you know, I don't necessarily like to work out sometimes, but I find if I'm playing a game on my phone while I'm on the bike, the exercise bike, it makes it much easier and kind of more fun, you know? In a way you're talking now about wise attention. Hmm. Okay. Because the unwise attention would be, I hate this bicycle. I hate this pedaling. Okay, and so we're not enduring it. But being distracted from it by watching uh, a game on the cell phone or whatever like that, that would actually be, uh, it would be ordinary wholesome, but it would be wholesome. Hmm. Okay, the the noble wholesome would be watching the Domerado video while you're on the, <laughs> the the bike or maybe just out on a walk in nature there you go yeah and, and not on a bike huh. okay so uh this is the point about enduring let's go to the next one would be uh abandoned by avoiding some things but, need to be for, avoided thanks for right. enduring, thanks for enduring all my questions <laughs> well, I've avoided some of them too. <laughs> Very good. 
<laughs> All right. So, taints to be abandoned by avoiding. What are the things? Well, you can look at it and, and see that we avoid dangerous things. That's what we would do. That sure. In fact, if you know that the cop is in the middle of this block, then don't turn into that block. <laughs> <laughs> if you know that the uh, um, uh, that there is danger that that dog is wild, then don't go close to that wild dog. Right. Because reflecting wisely, he avoids wild elephants. You could say you avoid the wild. We would avoid a wild elephant, a wild horse, a wild bull, a wild dog, any snake, a stump. Why would a monk avoid a stump? Think about it. Not the trip and fall? No, because the stump is a home to perhaps that snake. Hmm. Or... Um, the, um, uh, the gadflies or the ants, the biting ants, all of that kind of stuff. Right. A lot okay. Of so you, you would avoid a stump. You would also avoid a bramble patch, a chasm, a cliff, a cesspool, a sewer. Well, a lot of these things we already know that we're supposed to avoid. Oh, I, I have a quick comment on this. Um, so this I this is something that you often teach is if you're in a situation that creates dukkha, get out of the situation. I've heard you say this in many different ways to many different people. Mm -hmm. And this is actually something I don't think is emphasized much at all in Western Buddhism. You know, in Western Buddhism, the emphasis is on the the development, right, of, oh, make mm -hmm. the situation and, you know, endure, 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 be mindful, be mindful, be happy, be this. And I really appreciated, you know, your teaching of the Buddha's teaching here that sometimes you sh if you can get out, just get out. You know, if it's. <laughs> exactly. You know, they don't teach so, that. Stuff, I don't think. You know. So reflecting wisely, he avoids sitting in unsuitable seats like a chair that's got a nail through it. <laughs> <laughs> Wandering in unsuitable resorts, associating with bad friends. Now, that's the one that's hard for most Westerners because we can't, we, we just associate with the people that are around us without recognizing that some people we need to avoid, hmm. need to stay away from them. Um, and associating with bad friends, since if he were to do so, <clears throat> wise com uh, companions in the holy life might suspect him of evil conduct. In other words, if you associate with people, uh, in fact, we've even got it, guilt by association. We've got laws against uh, accomplices, you know, accomplice before the fact, accomplice after the fact, et cetera, like that. Associating with bad friends is really dangerous. And so if you know that this guy is not going to be a good friend, then don't associate with him. Which also, going back to this point about so that wise companions in the holy life, so the Buddha is already uh, expecting that the people who are listening to him are already associating with wise people. 
So we need to continue to associate with the wise and to stay away from those who are going to act unwisely because they will invite us to act unwisely also. While taints, vexations, and fevers might arise in one who does not avoid these things, there is no taints, vexations, or fever in one who does avoid these things. These are called the taints that should be abandoned by avoiding, like snakes, sewers, and, and sometimes the people who would be called snakes and sewers. <laughs> <laughs> or wild things. <laughs> so here's one the next one starting with verse 20 things to be abandoned by removing what taints because should be abandoned by removing here because replaced wisely does not tolerate an unrisen un uh, thought of sensual desire he abandons it removes it does away with it and annihilates it so if you do an example of this is because I download files and movies. If I come across something that is porn and I can see that it's porn in the name because it's got a triple X or there's some other ways, then I will delete that file immediately. I will remove it. But if I find out that a file that I didn't catch it in the name was still pornography, as soon as I recognize it as pornography, I'll just stop the video and remove it. Because I don't need those kind of sensual things, so I can remove those files simply by finding them. But I don't have to say, oh, well, I'm not going to download anything because something might be unwholesome. But we have to actually investigate it. But it doesn't take much investigation. Sometimes just three X's in the name of a file is enough to say, I know what's in that file. I don't have to open it to see what's in there. I know it already. Right. Or if you get a whole, um, let us say, directory full of files who happens to be each file is a different name of a girl. <laughs> like, you know, uh, SusieABI.com and Judy uh, uh, MP3.com, et cetera, like that. You could just go ahead and avoid uh, by removing that whole directory <laughs> because they're unwholesome. So there's also another way of thinking about it is even in the mind that we can throw that trash out. That when a thought comes up, this is a sensual thought. We could throw that thought out. Hmm. We thought of wanting her. Would that also extend to your partner? Like, let's say, you know, you're in a committed relationship or you're married or something and you have a sensual thought about your partner. Would the Buddha recommend throwing that out to the layman or would the Buddha say it's fine because you have it? So you're not wanting something you can't have. Um, let us say that that all of that is in play and that eventually over time, you know, this is in fact is true in all cultures that old established married relationships don't have much sex anymore. Hmm. Very little. Why is that? Why can they go for months and months when a teenager, he can't go a day without whacking off, and yet a middle-aged man can go months and an old man can go for the rest of his life? Why is that? The answer is, is because we can see it. 
we could see the dangers. And so we could remove those kind of thoughts. Hmm. Okay. And so now, finally, the last one on the list. Those taints that are to be abandoned by developing. What taints bhikkhu should be abandoned by developing? Here, a bhikkhu reflecting wisely develops, aha, there it is, sati. He develops the um, sati enlightenment factor. Now, what is the sati when it's an enlightenment factor? Is that it is um, unremitting. It keeps coming back. That's not saying that it's there all the time, but it says that when you need sati, it'll be available for you. Mm. When you need it. Okay, so this is what can be developed. Now, I've, I've said this before, maybe you've heard it, but the seven factors of enlightenment is the Eightfold Noble Path. Seven factors of enlightenment, Eightfold Noble Path, what gives here, right? Mm. They are, in fact, the same thing but with the development that we're actually developing the seven factors of enlightenment is because we're practicing the Eightfold Noble Path. And so by practicing sati, we develop it to be unremitting sati. By developing, let's see which one's next on here. Um, he says that he develops the, the right the mindfulness enlightenment factor which is supported by seclusion dispassion and cessation and it ripens in relinquishment hmm. okay so these seclusion means we get away from it we don't care about it anymore we let it fall away and then we give it up next we have the um In investigation of states, enlightenment factor. The energy, now the energy is the same thing as one's right effort. In the beginning, it's effort. But as it's developed, it becomes energetic. It also has the, um, the pity and the sukha, the peacefulness, and the um, bad translation here, the concentration and factor, which is actually samati, which means gathering together the factors. Mm. That uh, samati does not translate to concentration very well. It translates much better to gathering the factors together. That's what it really means. Mm. And also the equanimity enlightenment factor, which means being okay with everything. So these are the things that are to be developed by uh, are to be abandoned by developing. These are the taints that we can abandon by actually practicing the Eightfold Noble Path. This is what needs to be developed, is the Eightfold Noble Path, which means that we're practicing to be free from suffering. Mm. So this is what the real thing for development is, is to develop the items on the list that is known as the Eightfold Noble Path or the Eightfold Noble Method or the Eightfold Noble Way. Or maybe we don't even have to use the word eight, that in fact the Buddha never used the word eight. Hmm. What he talked about was 
right, noble unification of mind with its supports and its features. Hmm. So we don't even have to talk about eights and sevens and whatnot like that. That seems to have been uh, something that is very human for us to do is to start giving lists of things. Right. So uh, with these seven factors of uh, unremitting sati, unremitting investigation, unremitting energy or the effort that keeps going, unremitting joy, unremitting uh, tranquility or peace, unremitting unification of mind, and an unremitting equanimity, I would call uh, that, you probably heard me use the example of sea legs. Sure. That you can handle whatever floor that you're on you can handle whatever situation you're in, regardless of how volatile it is, because you've got the experience to be able to manage it with these other factors of um, awakening. Sure. So that's what we mean by equanimity, means that we can handle anything. Hmm. Hmm. So the conclusion here, because when a for a bhikkhu, the taints that should be abandoned by seeing have been abandoned by seeing. When the taints that should be abandoned by restraining have been abandoned by straining, and when the taints that should be abandoned by using have been abandoned by using, when the taints that should be abandoned by enduring have been abandoned by enduring, when the taints that should be abandoned by avoiding have been abandoned by avoiding, and when the taints that should be abandoned by removing have been abandoned by removing, and when the taints that should be abandoned by developing have been abandoned by developing, then he is called a bhikkhu who dwells restrained with the restraint of all the taints. He has severed craving, flung off the fetters, and with the complete penetration of conceit, he has made an end to suffering. Hmm. It's actually a doable path. It's not magical. It's not highfalutin. And it uh, and it is not time oriented. Right. But it's right here, right now, when in this moment you have uh, flung off the fetter, severed the craving, then in this moment you have made an end to suffering. Hmm. This is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted and delighted with the Blessed, with the blessed Word's words. Why were they delighted? Because they were already all soda pod. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, so I have a question about this Suda. So, when let's say you're confronted by a situation or whatnot in life, and you're thinking about how do I cast away this uh, defilement? You know, how do I get get rid of this? Right. So, um, should you? I, I would imagine you would begin by seeing. That would be the first one would be to see it and then mm -hmm. seeing alone is enough you you do that and then the the others you know whether it's you endure or you avoid or you abandon etc you you kind of learn over time which of those to to pick and choose right is that kind of the, the idea like 
How does one yes. decide which one of these to, to go through? Yeah. Well, yes, it happens over time because sometimes we feel like a nut. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're paying attention and sometimes we're not. Right. But that does not mean that things are a long, hard, slow process with results. Hmm. No, the results are immediate. The results are immediate. If you avoid something right now, you've got the benefit of avoiding it right now. Right. If you see a wild elephant down the trail, you avoid going down there and you got the benefits of not getting gored by that elephant right now. Sure. That's the obvious thing. And yet in Western Buddhism, because of Christianity and other things in our culture, we think that there's a long, slow process. You just kind of thought about it like that. I, I it yeah, and I imagine there, there's still benefit from like the more you practice the seeing, you know, the wiser your responses get, right? So I would imagine there is some kind of benefit. But that's even, an unwholesome way of looking at it. The wholesome way of looking at it is never mind about the future. Can I feel good about it right now? Yeah, because once you're comparing, that's immediately unwholesome. You know, mm-hmm. pairing with yourself unfavorably. Uh-huh. You know, like, even, what will I be in the future? Right. Well, you know, yeah, that's the whole idea then is to come out of that past and that future and, and uh, gradual, uh, uh, let us say, uh, e- event oriented. I had that event, I'm a Sotapan. I had that event, I'm a uh, Anagami. I had that event, I'm a Narahat. I've had that uh, experience of past lives and things like that, so I'm a whoop to do That's the whole problem with uh, the Western mind state, is that we're looking for incremental progress rather than immediate results. Mm. Okay. So sometimes you have immediate results and sometimes you don't. Right. That does not mean anything. It means, okay, wakey, wakey, and have some immediate results right now again. Mm. Got it. That's why it's all developed, that all is uh, around sati, to develop that sati so that it's unremitting. It keeps coming back and keeps coming back when you need it. Hey, do you think you need meditation to develop sati, or do you think just thinking about the Dhamma a lot is, is good enough? Does one have to go to a gym to lift weights in order to become strong? No. Does going to a gym and lifting weights guarantee that you're going to be strong? No. Does that answer your question about meditation? Yes. Yes, it does. Okay. It might work or it might not, but if it does work, it's a method that does work. Most of the people in the West are practicing a meditation that doesn't work. They don't get strong by going to the gym of noting. They don't get strong by going to the gym of metta. Right. But if we practice metta in a different way, we can develop it. 
that noticed that, in fact, Meta was not on the list of things that need to be developed, that Meta is the natural outcome of having developed those things. Right. In other words, if you do have joy, if you do have tranquility, if you do have mindfulness, if you are investigating, if you do have uh, uh, equanimity, if you do have your shit together, and that's basically the easy way to talk about samadhi. What is the definition of samadhi? You've got your shit together. <laughs> and when you got your shit together, when you are able to handle anything, your natural outcome is going to be friendly, joyful, making friends, giving metta, practicing mm. mudita, which practices uh, giving that joy out. Mm. Okay, so metta is not a cause, metta is an effect. Mm. It's the natural outcome. It's not a practice. It's not something to be developed. Mm. Ah, wow. <laughs> you mean jhana is not something to be developed? No, we do not need jhana. What we need to develop is mindfulness, investigation. We need to develop it so that we're energetic. We need to develop it so that we're happy and joyful. We need to develop so that we are peaceful, mm. easy going. We need to develop it so that the mind is collected together, so that we do have our shit together and that we can handle it. That's the sea legs. That's the equanimity that I can handle things. I got it. Mm. This is what needs to be developed. Not jhana, not soda pine. Sotapan is the natural outcome of the delight of the Dhamma. Hmm. Cool. Awesome. So so this this um, uh, sutta is jam-packed with stuff. It's a really, wow. really powerful, important sutta. It's very rich. Yeah, there's a lot in there. I really enjoyed reading it, but I enjoyed even more, you know, getting taught the sutta. That this was really cool. And I'm really glad I asked to do this and i think our next one would be suda number four or excuse me suda number nine suda number nine excuse me nine oh wow that's a heavy one okay cool that's uh, the uh uh samaditi okay right, right view right noble view which is a very very deep explanation of paticca samupada Great. That sutta was done by by Sariputta. This is not a Buddha sutta. This is one done by Sariputta. Oh, great! I, I'm excited. Should we? And the best and the interesting part about it is, is that the whole teaching of Paticca Samapada is done backwards. Huh? Uh, why is that? He starts with dukkha and winds up to the beginning, back to ignorance. I like it. It's a bit avant-garde. <laughs> mm -hmm. So cool. we'll we'll talk more about that sutta next next time. Sutta number nine. That's on our list. That's great. Also, I've got a little testimonial for you, and maybe you can do this at the beginning of the next one. But you know why I wanted to start talking with you about the suttas? Go ahead. 
because this used to be our conversations used to be kind of a therapy session for me. But after applying the Dhamma, everything just got to be really good. And I felt like I didn't have anything to talk with you about anymore. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm serious. So I thought, well, let's just do the suttas then. That was my thought process is I wanted to have a reason to continue to come and have yes, long chats. With you me. can call me without a reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you don't uh, have to have a reason. Good. Yeah, because. You know, the Dhamma is actually like quite simple in a lot of ways. And when you start applying it in your life, you then, or at least me, I, I didn't necessarily feel the need to come and talk to you about it because I felt like, oh, okay, I kind of figured it out, you know, although it's good to confirm sometimes. But the suttas, I think, takes it to a whole nother level. You know, that's a whole, mm -hmm. you know, you know, or should I say less deep, more awake, you know, level. So. <laughs> yes, we're going up here. We're not digging. We don't yeah. need a shovel. We need hot air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll finish now, and we'll do another sutta next time. Okay, great. Next week, number nine. Should I uh, let you know beforehand, or do you have any recommendation for how we go about doing this? Yeah, we can do it like a day in advance. We'll get ready that way. Okay, great. Sounds All good. Right. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. This is this is okay. Excellent. Right. We'll Cheers. see you. See you soon. Bye. Okay, bye bye. <laughs>